0: So, today I thought I would talk a bit about uh, my experience in academia in the last 10 years, in what I call conventional academia, because from the end of January, I will not be working anymore in a conventional university. I will be working full time with the Ayn Rand Institute and with the Ayn Rand University. So, I thought as a sum up of these 10 years, maybe in terms of people wanting to know how is academia from the inside or more importantly if some of you might consider joining academia or pursuing a career in academia what are the prospects how are you going to be dealt with if you are uh, if you do not share the standard academic uh, the, the standard views in academia and all that stuff. So the short story is that uh, I, my career in academia did not end because of any perds or because of any <laughs> cancelling or because of any dramatic reason. Actually, I was, uh, I'm very sad to leave my current university because, as I said in the past, it's a very good environment to work in. But... Since the beginning of the pandemic and uh, since I experienced uh, having geographical independence, I decided this is something that I want in my life. And uh, the prospect of being able to teach at an institution that wouldn't confine me somewhere and having to be hostage to every government's uh, lockdown or travel restriction made it slightly more appealing. So that was the one thing. And to be honest with you, I don't think that the model of the university as it is today, where you have a big theme park, with uh, where the students need to pay a lot of money every year to get knowledge in a very in in a very time-rich, I would say, manner, four years or three years, and every year you have something like six months vacation, this can't be the proper the proper model. So another reason is that I don't consider that the traditional, conventional model of academia is going to have a very long future, particularly in areas like social sciences. But obviously, the most important thing is that teaching uh, teaching to students of objectivism is way more appealing to me, is something that I'm way more passionate about, and it's something that gives me a career trajectory, which is something that I can enjoy. So that's the short story. So there's no drama. There's no cancellation. There's no nothing like that has uh, happened. Again, on the contrary, my experience has been quite pleasant. So what are the good things in academia? So if you consider a career in academia, what are the best things that you have to look forward to? And now all this with the caveat that it has to do with what kind of institution you work in. So I've worked in three universities, University of Kent, Loughborough University, and York St. John University, my experience were not 100% the same in all these institutions. So take what I say with, obviously, a pinch of salt. So one thing is the flexibility that you get by working in a university, the time flexibility. Starting by the fact that that you have, again, the fact of six months that you don't have to be every day somewhere specific at 9 o'clock. So, six months you will not be teaching. So, these six months you are more or less master of your own day. Or you can think about it as you are being paid to do things that you enjoy, such as your own research. And, uh, or you can even work from home most of the time. Again, there are some institutions that require you to be there physically from nine to five. I think more and more we will see this disappearing. So this is a big luxury that academia has. And now, careful, I'm not saying that academics don't work or that they're lazy. What I'm saying is that this idea that half of the year, your program is not the same as the program of someone who, no matter what time of the year it is, day in, day out, you have to be at work at the same time, is a big advantage. Particularly if you think of doing extra things or you think of uh, using that time to expand your horizons. I don't mean use work time to do other things, but for example, in terms of research, trying new things, experimenting with new things and things like that. So this is something, the flexibility that I don't think you can find in any other profession uh, or in few other professions. Another thing that I found very, very useful, perhaps the most useful thing was teaching itself. Why? Because it's one of the best exercises you can have in public speaking and public communication. And one of the most difficult, I would say, because think about it this way. If you go to talk to people in a nine round meeting or in a conference, you know that people are there because they want to listen to you. They are there because they expect something from you. They are there because they are interested in what you are interested in. At this. However, when you enter a university class, your expectation should be that most of the students are not going to be interested in what you have to say. Most of the students will be on their phones and the default is that you bore them. So you have to go against this default. So the default is, uh, this is boring, but I just need to get over with, to get it done with. So you have to reverse this. You have to change this dynamic. So when you teach at the university, unfortunately, I would say, because these are the times that we live in, you also have to be a performer. You also have to be, in a way, an entertainer. And you could say, again, there's not much to celebrate in it. At the same time, it doesn't matter. It is a very good exercise. It's a very good challenge. Trying to attract the attention of people and trying to make things interesting for them, irrespective of what context they might come from. So I think my presentation skills, my explaining and breaking down things have been um, have been benefited from my experience at the university. So you have to come up with things like uh, exams from popular culture. Of course, this is a challenge in itself because I would use examples from a fight club or friends, and I assume that everyone has seen this. And as years go by, less and less, fewer and fewer students are familiar with that. But still, you have to find a way to communicate to students. So these were the two favorite things that I experienced. The one, again, the flexibility of your time. Number two, it's a constant exercise in, it's like a never ending workshop in communication skills. And in what we call public speaking. So these are, so these were the best things. Now what are the not so good things? And then I will go to what I expect most are interested in, which is how does it, how, how can you be an objective in academia and not get cancelled and or how can you hold heterodox views and not get in trouble. And I'll get to that very, very soon. So things that I didn't like uh, so much. And by the way, thank you very much, Jonathan, for your contribution. So the things that, because I portrayed in a way a picture that you you can get away with uh, a good life in academia. However, if you want to be really, really good in academia. So the truth is that at least for the last three, four years, academia was for me, not the main path in my life. I already knew that at some point I want to do something with objectivism. Objectivism was my passion. So I tried to be as good as I could in my work, but my mind was not entirely there. But if you want to be very good at successful in academia, there's one thing that you have to do, and this is publishing. And publishing not books, or not only books, but publishing in peer-reviewed journals. And this is something that particularly if you hold views that are not very mainstream, you will have a trouble doing. So how peer reviewing works is a system which many people say, okay, I cannot imagine a better one, but personally I find it very questionable in terms of some of its principles. So you submit something to a journal, you submit a draft, then the draft goes to two people whom you don't know who they are, and they have, they have how to put it, they are the editors. They are the commentators, so they can decide whether it's going to, pub- to be published or not, and they give you changes. There is part of negotiation, but usually it's it's a process which is a bit soul killing. Now, this is not to say that a good editing process is not something useful. Actually, if you've uh, my experience with the Rand Institute, for example, is that the editing process. And the, the editorial process is the strictest that one can find. is the strictest and, and very, very, very demanding. However, there's a big difference. There you know your reviewers. So if Onkar Gate thinks that something that I wrote is, doesn't make much sense, or if Keith Lockett, who is very good in, in, in writing, and it's his, I know he's very good, gives me some advice on my writing, I'm going to, be, I'm going to take it very, very, very seriously. However, if a random reviewer whom I don't know has a comment with which I don't agree, and it's very difficult to negotiate, and, but I have to make the change because I know that otherwise I'm not going to get published, this is something which is, again, not very easy, not very enjoyable. Not to mention that many times that, or the many, the, the significant amount of times that I would submit something that had to do with Ayn Rand, and it wouldn't even go to reviewers, it would get immediately rejection in terms of we're not interested in these kind of things. So having to publish and play the game of peer-reviewed publication is something that I never liked. And uh, actually, in the last years, my publication record was basically my book. However, in the long run, this would be completely unsustainable for me in my career. And I was lucky in a way because I'm working in a teaching focusing university. In a university that their focus is you have to be good at teaching because most of our students come from uh, what they call less privileged backgrounds. Therefore, you need to be good in communicating with them and explaining things. There are other universities whose main source of income is research funding. And there you would have to publish. And there is a lot of pressure in publishing. And in such an environment, I wouldn't last many years because being good at teaching would not be their main concern. Another thing that I don't like in university and would be a big uh, barrier in me having a very good career is the issue of funding, that you have to apply for funding from funding bodies, mostly quasi public funding bodies. And you can imagine what type of research they are interested in interest, uh, research that must have an impact, which means has to be translated in policy or benefit a particular community, or research that promotes some particular values, what they call social justice and things like that, which again, I wouldn't be in a good position to get that research. So what I'm saying with that is that my, how to put it, my ceiling in academia would be low. So my future in academia would be best case scenario. I would continue working in a teaching-based university. People would like having me there because I would do a lot of work. But as a career, it wouldn't be a straight trajectory going forward, which is something which is important for me. And the last thing that I do not like in academia, and this is something that can be found whether you are in a small or in a big university, is the cynicism. And what I mean cynicism, I don't mean that people are you know, are bad or something, but almost everyone in academia doesn't really, really believe, in my view, in academia. They don't believe in the potential of this institution. Now, different people don't like it for different reasons. For example, many in the left don't like it because they think it's a marketized thing and the students are customers. Other might not like it because they think that the students are coddled But there's a very big, there's a more and more developing feeling that, you know what, here we are not very sincere with the students because we are not very much demanding of them. So we lower our standards to meet the students where they are, but not in a way that I will help you and together we will go up. Mostly I will meet you in a lower standard because that's where we're all going to be more comfortable. And now the question is, is this a model which is sustainable? So for example, you have probably heard about uh, marking inflation, which means that every grade's inflation, every year grades go up and up and up. Why? Because our standard go down and down and down. And uh, this has to do with the fact that in academia, you find this cynicism. You find this idea that well, in a way, we pretend that we have standards and the students pretend that... So there, there's there's a lot of pretending, to put it this way. So you know that most of the students are not very interested in what you have to say, but, and I know that this might be unjust to many students, but again, talk to any academic, you will hear more or less something like that. That, well, the standards have gone down, but hey, what can we do? And I don't like this. Hey, what can we do? So that's why I look forward to being in an environment where if I see that there needs to be change in something, I can initiate that change. And I'm looking forward to this being my experience with the Ayn Run university. And no, obviously, I'm happy to answer any questions you have about, uh, about academia. So these were the things that I don't like. Now. What about the issue that puts university in the news? Usually, and it is this uh, supposedly suffocating environment, suffocating intellectual environment. Now, I have to say that uh, I didn't face problems with that. There was once only an issue, and I was only indirectly involved. So uh, in one of my previous institutions where I worked, uh, we had to have a yearly, lect- yearly sociology lecture. And the person who was invited was a feminist scholar. Last minute, she had to cancel. She had some uh, personal problem, a conflict in her head, something like that. So we end up without, uh, without a speaker. So I invite my mentor, Frank Furedi. And one member of staff, probably because Frank Furedi is not very popular, among mainstream academic circles, they thought it's gonna not be it's gonna be a problem for the students. So they bypassed me and they went straight to the admin leadership and they said or the student service and said it's going to expose students in danger, I, I, something like that, I'm not a, not. A, but they use this admin, this bureaucratic language to say that he's not a good speaker, anyway. Even that was a relatively mild problem because I stood my ground and said, look, uh, I think he's a very good scholar. His publication record speaks for itself. And uh, if you don't want him, you tell them yourselves and you tell them why you don't want him. And there was this reasonable discussion. Says, look, uh, is there going to be a problem? No, he, he's not someone who's like a, you know a provocateur. No, he's a serious scholar. Okay, we'll have him. And that was it. So it was a mild annoyance. And again, even, and even the colleague who created this, uh, this uh, who made the complaint, didn't know that it was me who invited him. So there was, it was nothing personal. So you will find these things because if you work with many people who share a different point of view, statistically, some of them will be, uh, might be a bit unpleasant every now and then but nothing major. And I think what saved me from further problems was mostly that I was very, very open for, from the beginning about my views. So when I was applying, for example, to Loughborough, I put in my cover letter that uh, I'm very proud about my extracurricular activities, which was, uh, co- which included being in the organizing committee of the battle of ideas or that uh, in my publication, uh, in my list of applications, in non-academic applications, I would have spiked online. And the point is, you, then you cannot be surprised and say, who is this guy? When you hire me, you know who I am. I'm good at my work. Therefore, you, will not, uh, you, will not, you should not act surprised if you find out that in one of my tweets, I retweet Claire Fox or whatever else might get someone in trouble. And of course, once I I started being involved with the objective movement, it was again in my CV and in my cover letter or or everywhere in my social media. And I think this gave me a protection. The other thing that gave me a protection is that I had many intellectual friends who could make a lot of noise if something were to happen to me. And in the same way, I made a lot of noise when one of my intellectual friends Was uh, attacked or unjustly treated. And I think this was very, very, uh, this was a good choice. So I wasn't provocative enough so that canceling would be the only choice. But at the same time, I was open enough and people would know that if I would go down, it would make a note of noise. At the same time, super important as well. I was, I think, a very pleasant colleague to work with. And that's very important. When you go to an environment where you expect that people are not going to agree with you, there's no point being unlikable. You start with the premise that, okay, we disagree, but we can be good colleagues. We might not be the best friends. We might not be partners for life, but let's be good good colleagues. Let's have interesting discussions. I will take you seriously, particularly if you're interested in ideas, we're going to have good, good discussions. I will volunteer for things that you don't want to volunteer. For example, I would used to do all the open days on a Saturday. Because I live close to campus, I don't have kids, my colleagues appreciate these things. So they didn't do me a favor by not canceling me. But what I'm saying is there was a pleasant environment. And I would say even friendships developed in that environment. So this is, a, this is what I would consider my safety net in terms of cancel-proofing yourself. So yes, you can be a heterodox thinker in academia, but you will have problems mostly in terms of your research being published in academic papers. So what many heterodox academics do is the following. They have one area which is way too technical, and that's where they publish. And then in their public persona, they deal more with a different area. So for example, I know someone who is very vocal about Brexit, very much supportive of Brexit, very much against uh, what we call, quote, political correctness and all that stuff. But in his writing, his focus is on peace, uh, on uh, UN and peacemaking and uh, some technical aspects of international relations. Now, you cannot have this double persona, maybe for your whole career, or I don't know if it will work. But if you are in a teaching-focused university, And if you're lucky enough that your colleagues are decent people, and uh, if you are open about your views, and it's open that you have nothing to be ashamed about, and you know what you're talking about, so people know that if they go against you, you can defend your position with conviction, then I think, yes, you can have a career in academia. But... Can you have a career in a big university and uh, can you get funding and can you get research? This is where it is going to be more and more difficult. So that's that's the that's the main point that I had about these 10 years in academia. What I expect more in my new academic environment, because I see the Ayn Run University as an academic environment, is first and foremost, having high expectations from students. This is something that I'm really looking, looking forward to not patronizing students. And this is something that I experienced as an Objectivist Academic Center student myself. I remember the orientation leaflet, the orientation PDF says, You will be marked, not in the way you are used to be, to get marked, maybe in the times we live in academia. That was the message. It wasn't meant this, it wasn't used with these words. So I finished uh, first in my class most of the years. However, the first time I got a five out of five, for example, in my assignments was something like four or five months in. So I like this. I like that the student knows that you take them seriously, that there are expectations and that by pushing them a bit more, you are actually helping them. You're uh, You're not harming them. This is something I really missed in academia. I liked motivating students, but I could not slightly try to push them outside of their comfort zone. Because of the, because of the whole culture and ethos of university, that would be, uh, that would be impossible. So that's something I'm actually looking forward to. So I'm not particularly, I don't particularly see myself as making a career choice. I'm actually seeing myself jumping to the bandwagon, which is the future, which is smaller and more uh, condensed, more bootcamp-like providers of knowledge. Of course, I will miss the face-to-face teaching. And uh, in every occasion, I will do it in seminars or things like that. But I have to say this, face-to-face teaching is much, much more direct and obviously more uh, beneficial both for the teacher and for the students than Zoom. But if, if your teachers are going to be Ongar Gatte and uh, Aaron Smith, it's better to have them as teachers and work through Zoom rather than, again, being in an environment where you are, not, uh, you are not excited. Thank you very much, Bonnie, for the kind words. So my module in January is called The Road to Critical Race Theory. It's a module which is all open for uh, OAC students for the uh, for students of the objectives graduate center, for the junior fellow level members of the uh, the, the the of the annual institute, but also for auditors, uh, I haven't got yet. Uh, the, the The public campaign for this module is going to start this week, so I will let everyone know very soon where they can apply if they want to be an auditor. There's a price. It's uh, hopefully, it's a prize that uh, some people can get, uh, I think, uh, scholarships and things like that. But you will have to discuss this with the with the organizers. So the module starts in January and it's called The Road to Critical Race Theory. It starts from the Frankfurt School and it deals with terms like postmodernism, poststructuralism, the environmental movement, feminism. So what are the sets of ideas that have led us to from the 1960s? to critical race theory. And Bonnie's question also brings me uh, to mind another point which is very, very good in academia, which I hadn't realized till now. It's an excellent training in having to understand ideas that you don't agree with. So if I, when in most years I had to teach Marx, Gramsci, uh, Marcuse, environmentalism, I started my teaching career by teaching a 24-week course in environmental social science. So when you have to do all these things, or I had to negotiate in, in a previous university, the negotiation was, I will teach Judith Butler if you allow me to teach Nozick. And I said, yeah, sure. So I had to read the Judith Butler, I had to read Foucault. So this is something else which is good. It's, it's, it's like you constantly play away games, and away games in, uh, in uh, difficult uh, conditions, that you have to, you, have to, you have to work hard to understand these things. And you have to also to work hard to, in a way, to prove yourself. Because if everyone knows that you hate, uh, I don't know, that you don't like Marx and you have to teach Marx, you have to be extra careful and you have to take yourself extra seriously so that you are precise. That I'm not uh, strawmaning anyone here. I'm putting my best effort to explain to you what Marx or what Judith Butler or what uh, the Frankfurt School said. So this was very good training. Okay, so these were my parting thoughts, let's say from the academia, uh, from, trad- from conventional academia. And I hope that uh, the Ayn Rand University, which is again the, the new educational program of the Ayn Rand Institute, which is a continuation of the Objectivist Academic Center, I hope that people will see it in the future in the way they saw, for example, something like Uber, the thing that changed an industry, an industry that was in decline, and it was in decline, first and foremost, because of the lethal poison, which is cynicism, and the lethal poison, which is, well, the struggling which is, well, what can you do? It is what it is. So that's why I really appreciate what uh, Tal Svani did. We said... Oh, academia is not good. Okay, we're not just going to struggle. We're going to create something better. And it's something that uh, uh, I'm very proud actually to be involved with. Okay, thank you very much for keeping me company uh, today. Uh, there is, there's going to be a short uh, session also on Clubhouse for the next 10-15 minutes if you want to join me there. And again, particularly if you have dreams and plans about academia, I'm happy to give you my my insights. Of course, if you want to be an architect or an engineer, the environment you're going to see in academia is going to be different, but why not? We can discuss this as well. Okay, that's all from me for today. Thank you very much. Talk soon.